If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Take something iconic, like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA. Used under license by FCA US LLC. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From absolute monarchy, to fascist ally to Hitler, to communist dictatorship, Romania oscillated between regime changes in the 20th century. The story of the nation and its colourful, chaotic and often corrupt leaders is told by Paul Kenyon in his new book, Children of the Night. I spoke to Paul to find out more. Thank you very much for joining me, Paul, to talk about the history of modern Romania. I think that many of our listeners, and I'll throw myself into this book as well before I'd, I'd read your book, may not be too familiar with the history of Romania. So what are some of the biggest misconceptions that you come across about Romanian history? You know, that is a really good question because I know a lot of Romanians and these misconceptions they're about to talk about, they really, really dislike them. I mean, these are the things that... Um, that upset uh, uh, Romanians, including my wife. Um, so number one, obviously, is Dracula. And um, <laughs> so Dracula was a, uh, a real individual. And Dracula um, was, was somebody who was called Vlad Tepes, Vlad the Impaler, or Vlad Dracula. And his father was Vlad Dracul. And um, so these were real people in the mid-1400s. And um, in Romania, they are seen as uh, great warrior leaders. So they were great Christians. Uh, they were um, crusaders. They fought against the vast Ottoman uh, Empire who were coming in uh, from the south and the east, and they defeated them. So Dracula is a war hero. He's an extraordinary character there. He's seen as a great, powerful leader and an inspirational leader. Uh, so when people kind of, we laugh and say, oh, gothic horror stories and, and Bram Stoker and things, they're not all that uh, pleased about it. So the first thing is Dracula. Um, and it is a bad idea when you meet a Romanian to say, ah, oh, Romania, that's where Dracula comes from. They don't really like that. The second thing is um, orphans. And you may remember that um, immediately after the revolution in 1989, there were lots of images on our television screens of orphans on the streets of Bucharest. And a lot of journalists, including me, went over at that point and did stories about Romanian orphans. And that made this kind of myth, it, create, it, 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 it made it worse and worse over the years. Um, they were a result of a very misguided policy by the communist dictator Nicolae Ceausescu. A lot of Westerners went in and took children out of Romania, which really obviously frustrated and annoyed uh, Romanians who, you know, wanted to keep their own children. And the, the other misconception, which is a really poisonous one, is that Romania is somehow sort of um, 
poor and agricultural. And actually, Romania is, um, uh, you know, it's it's doing very well. It's a very upstanding member of the European Union. It's got an amazing tech industry. You know, this is the hub for big uh, uh, American-based multinationals who will say, our European hub should be in Romania. They've got amazing graduates there. Um, and also, what people don't understand or, or, or have never really known is that um, certainly in the, in the interwar years, and all the way, in fact, before the Second World War, Romania had an amazing, thriving um, cultural scene. It had these sort of aristocratic gentlemen's clubs and it had, uh, uh, it still has beautiful countryside where people would go for picnics and things. And it was seen as this very sort of Francophile, uh, beautiful country where they had a, a lot of intellectuals, artists, musicians. You know, it was a sort of a central hub for culture and the arts. And we we don't really think of that anymore. And it just shows what 50 years of communism can do. It wipes away that memory. And what Romania is trying to do now is trying to resuscitate all that amazing sort of history that it has, that, that rich history, as I say, of the arts and culture and musicians and some of the best artists actually in the world now. So there's a lot to say uh, that's extremely positive about Romania at the moment. If you do dig a little bit deeper into the history of modern Romania, what kind of a story do you begin to uncover? Well, you, you uncover a really unusual story, which is, and a really colourful one, which is one about, um, it, it's about an extreme uh, pride in, in the country uh, and an extreme, almost mystical pride in its roots, which come out of ancient Rome. And so Romanians, uh, a lot of them would see their origin, their ancestors, as those of ancient Rome when it was part of the Roman Empire. And they would see themselves as a continuation of that. So this is a very precious thing. And it actually foreshadows an awful lot of what is to come in Romania. If you believe that you're uh, descendants of the great Roman Empire, then uh, your ancestor is important. The soil that you stand on is very important. The blood that is spilled into that soil as a result of all the battles that you've had to protect this ancestry is incredibly important. So, of course, by the time you come to Dracula, this is part of the myth that surrounds him. Part of it is actually true, which is this sort of uh, fetishistic, if you like, desire to um, protect uh, the purity of Romanian blood and the soil which Romanian blood has saturated over the centuries because they're so proud. And just one more thing to add to that is, if you think about it, they are a small island of Latinity. So it's a Latin-speaking nation in the middle of, of Slavs. Plus, they are Christians and they have defended themselves um, so steadfastly uh, over the centuries, that this becomes the theme that goes all the way from the beginning of Romania all the way to the present day. So that's a really important thing that people need to know about. They're very proud and patriotic for the reason that they've been invaded so many times, or at least had the threat of invasion over so many centuries. You mentioned there that it's an incredibly colourful history. And what strikes me from reading your book is is the amount of times that Romania essentially oscillated between regimes and ideological extremes. Why do you think that is? Yeah, well, that's it's a good question. And just before we spoke, I wrote down a very brief crib list, if you like, because Romania has oscillated so much. And I wrote down constitutional monarchy, fascist terror state, military dictatorship, royal dictatorship, communist republic. And you're right, it's vacillated between all these over quite short periods of time, and sometimes back and forth between those, and then reverted back to the original again. Um, and underlying all these really is the desire that we've already spoken about to defend 
the vulnerable borders of Romania because it finds itself on a, a very important fault line between East and West. Uh, and, and not just ter- in terms of um, military campaigns, but in terms of philosophy and religion. So it's between East and West. So what I was saying earlier that uh, Dracula was fighting off the old Ottoman army. So this is Christianity, Dracula, fighting off the Islamic armies. And um and that has continued. So if you think about it all the way through, we, we got to the point during the First and Second World War where, again, Romania is in the middle there, in the middle of an East versus West, which was on the East, it's got Russia, which has always wanted Romanian territory. And to the West, um, and, well, the North and West, if you like, it had the old Austro-Hungarian Empire, which wanted to bite huge chunks out of Romania to the North. And so it's always been surrounded by, by enemies. So that oscillation is, it's a series of different rulers and quite often dictators saying, I, you need, what we need somebody here is uh, somebody who's very strong, who will take control and make sure that nobody takes huge chunks out of this country ever again. So they come in quite often on a big patriotic ticket of I will defend the borders. And with that, the purity of our blood in the soil of Romania. You begin the book uh, with a with a list of characters, which I think it would be fair to say is a bit of a rogues gallery, really. Um, and those characters really dominate the story that you're telling here, don't they? Who are some of the figures that stand out to you in Romania's modern history? One of the ones that captivated me was a guy called Cornelio Cotrianu. He was the leader of a a fascist death cult, if you like. And he was a, a sort of mystic. He was very bright. He was a law student um, in a very grand university in the east of Romania. And um, he was opposed to um, the spectre of communism, uh, which was uh, beginning to affect Romania at the time. This is a young man who um, commanded such prestige in Romania that he ended up, uh, he could just wander on horseback, on a white horse, into villages and towns around Romania, and people would fall to their knees in respect and pray to him. So he was this almost demigod figure, but he was actually also a fascist and very anti-Semitic. So we have him. Um, another extraordinary character, which will fascinate British people, is um, that we have Queen Marie. So Queen Marie, who was Queen of Romania um, in the early 1900s, she was a, a granddaughter of Queen Victoria. And so we have um, this young British princess who goes to Romania in a, in a train over the, the Carpathians on a very snowy day and turns up in Romania in the middle of nowhere, this alien country, uh, to join her new husband, Ferdinand. You know, this, this young, impressionable 17-year-old princess uh, from uh, from Kent originally uh, becomes Queen of Romania. So she's a fascinating character. So, um, And one more is... We have Marshal Antonescu, who is the fascist wartime leader, um, who is somebody who became an ally and, and, and a friend of Hitler and somebody who Hitler respected so much, uh, more than he did Mussolini, uh, that he would sit there and listen for hours on end to Antonescu talk to him about history um, and uh, uh, yeah, important history of Romania. But it was very rare for Hitler to sit there on a chair and just say, speak to me and let me learn. And that's effectively what he did with Antonescu. When you're starting the book, you you start by kind of interrogating the figure of Dracula, but then we also look at some of the monarchs that shaped Romania's later history. So you spoke there about Marie, but another figure that you talk about who came to the throne in 1914 was King Carol II. What what can you tell us about him? Because his reign had a, a really significant impact on the state of the Romanian monarchy, didn't it? Yeah, Carol II is an extremely colourful figure, um, but he became... 
I mean, I have to choose my words quite carefully because there are some people who might still respect him in Romania, but he became, I think it's fair to say, um, quite unhinged. And so um, he was somebody who um, he had a lot of mistresses. His father and mother wanted him to get involved in the army and get involved in the war, and he refused to. And he drove a Rolls Royce around town instead, picking up women. I mean, he was really the epitome of a kind of wild child uh, royal who would uh, swan around town, do what the hell he liked, uh, pick up young women and uh, drink far too much. And power went to his head. And when he eventually became king, um, he turned it down a couple of times. He fled to France and Spain and Portugal and came back to Romania. And in total, what he was was uh, an entirely unreliable fascist leading uh, monarch who... um, was so jealous and so petty that when eventually he did become king of Romania, um, he was so concerned with this dazzling figure called Cornelio Codrianu, who was the fascist that everybody loved, um, that he basically had to do away with him. So he had him murdered, which wasn't unusual at the time in Romania, but somebody of such stature, the king, effectively to make sure that his greatest rival was dead, is what happened. You mentioned earlier, of course, that Romania was moving in a fascist direction and eventually ended up in an alliance with Nazi Germany. How did that transition from monarchy to fascism happen then? Well, it's interesting. Some people would say that the seeds of that fascism had been in uh, Romania for quite a long time in the sense that, you know, it's it's a movement on from nationalism, extreme nationalism, and then fascism. And it's about protecting your borders and making sure that you're not invaded and making sure again right back to Dracula, about the purity of Romanian blood and the purity of the Christianity and the soul of the country. And so um, basically the fascists would say all the way through the interwar years, the only way of defending us, our essence, our soul, our people, uh, is to make sure that no outsiders come in, that there's a purity about this. And the biggest threat to us are the communists. And the communists are quite often Jews. And they made the link between communists and Jews and said, therefore, they must be uh, they must be expunged, if you like, from this country. Um, and that became a very populist theme. And so all the way through the interwar years, uh, Romania moved m- increasingly towards what was at the beginning just a popular nationalism and became gradually more and more menacing fascism. Um, and so that's what happened. And, and I mean, ultimately, it's a really good question you ask, because that gradual shift into the kind of fascism we've been talking about um, was also because if you think about this protection of borders, when they when the Second World War starts, Romania does this thing which it did at the beginning of the First World War, which is to say, we are going to stay neutral. And neutrality is a really difficult thing to hold on to. It would be easier for somewhere like Switzerland or someone right in the outskirts of a theatre of war. But if you're right in the centre of it, there's a problem. And Romania has always been right in the centre of it, like I said before, between East and West. So when a war starts, all sides are saying, come on, Romania, you're on our side. You know you're on our side. Now, you can only say we're neutral for a limited period of time before everybody actually thinks they're not neutral. They're our enemy. So you end up with double enemies because everybody thinks if they were really on our side, they'd have declared for us. So Romania held on to its neutrality at the beginning of the Second World War for a little time. And then the thing that pushed them into it in the end was, again, it was territorial. They've got Russia pushing in from the east and they've got the Austro-Hungarian Empire with Hitler behind them pushing in from the north and all of them threatening. And then, in fact, 
actually taking Romanian territory. So Romania decided the best way for them to survive the Second World War intact and to keep their integrity and their size uh, was to join Nazi Germany, which is re- really to fend off the Russians and stop them taking Romanian territory. What was the impact of that decision on Romanians, like on the ground? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? It's it's an unpopular decision because uh, Romania is in a situation where actually uh, most of them are leaning philosophically and religiously and, and just spiritually towards France and the UK. They want to be on the side of uh, the Allies. And um, this was a territorial decision that was taken by Antonescu. So there is, he's, he's siding with um, with Hitler. So yeah, I, I mean, it's impossible to say that everybody was happy about it, because obviously there were people who supported Antonescu who would have thought it was a jolly good thing. But um, I think a lot of uh, normal people in the street, if you like, were, were, were very unhappy. In 1948, the pendulum swung again, as it were, and Romania came under communist rule. Can you explain how that happened? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the fascinating things, isn't it? We, we didn't, a lot of people in the West don't really understand how you can have a, uh, a fascist-leaning country that joined the war with, with, um, with Hitler as an ally, and then they come out of it, and a few years later, it is a, 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 a communist country. So, I mean, it's, it is fairly complicated, but in brief, at the end of the Second World War, uh, Churchill was asked which countries um, he felt strongly should be within the orbit of, of Western Europe, if you like. And it might surprise you to know, Romania wasn't one of them. Um, and, and when Stalin was asked which he quite fancied being in his orbit, Romania was very much uh, in the Soviet Union's mind. So um, it, it ended up with uh, Romania uh, being in Stalin's orbit. And so that meant that as soon as, pretty much as soon as the war finished, uh, a lot of um, uh, officials from Moscow, uh, they all get sent straight out to Bucharest to start changing the way things are done there. So as soon as you're in Soviet orbit, uh, you have to start adopting uh, their army, their police force. In fact, the entire Romanian army was neutered. They were told they had to put down their weapons and they weren't allowed to function anymore. So what this is, in fact, once you start sending in well-known officials and taking over the courts and taking over the army and taking over all the levers of government, what it is is a, a sort of takeover by stealth if you like, that is happening. And so you end up with the Sovietization uh, of Romania and it becomes something then of a, of, of, of a, a Soviet orbiting state that is very much in line at that time with Stalin. It doesn't have any choice but to be so. Now, the next question, of course, is once you've decided to do that in principle, how do you get the people to support it? Because, you know, two or three, four years before, they a lot of them were saying, well, we're proud nationalists. The last thing we want is any communists coming anywhere near our country. And then it appears to be a complete about turn. Suddenly, the communists are winning elections. So um, what actually happened was that... Um, uh, that the elections were, it may not surprise you to know, a series of fixed elections. And it's quite interesting when you look at the elections uh, that happened, uh, because immediately after the Second World War, the first election, the communists didn't stand. They stood behind an alliance of parties. So they're sort of, again, by stealth, hiding behind other parties and saying, um, we're here, but we're not a big threat. We're just part of a coalition. And there can be, you know, nobody must worry because we know you're all very concerned about the communists. And then gradually they took hold of the, the levers of power. But when the really, the significant landslide election came, uh, this was one that was absolutely undoubtedly fixed. Uh, and we know that because we have the diaries, various individuals who were there at the time 
time saying, um, you know, some of the communist committees were saying, what should we go for? 65%, 53%, how far can we push it? I mean, the whole thing was uh, just a pure confection. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. All that's really important, of course, is that Ceausescu was gone. There was an end to his rule and there was a, a, a move, no matter how gradual it was, towards democracy. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What can you tell us about the communist leadership in those early years? From what you were saying there, it sounds fairly corrupt. It was a corrupt leadership and it was uh, run by a character called Gorgio Gorgio Dej, who was, um, he was an old railway worker, a unionist, who was um, not very bright, but very determined. And um, Stalin saw him as an ally and he saw him as the right man in the post. So they had this choice, really, um, the Soviets, between the two kind of very preeminent people in the Communist Party in Romania at the time. And one of them was Gorgio Dej, ex-rail worker, not very bright. The other, Anna Pauka, who was really seen as a member of the bourgeoisie. So even though she was um, so super bright and a devout communist. They were Stalin was worried about her, but probably, in fact, definitely because she was too bright, but also because she was Jewish, which didn't go down very well in Moscow at the time. So in the end, they chose Gorgio Dej. So Gorgio Dej is there, and he is somebody who is, um, he wants to be sort of secretly um, against Stalin, but as everybody's terrified of Stalin at that time. So Gorgio Dej has to perform well, do everything Stalin asks and be a good boy. So at that time, it looks as though Romania is very much um, in Stalin's pocket. And the real difficulty comes when Stalin dies. And at this point, 
Gorgio Dej, who's been saying, I'm the number one Stalinist in this country. Don't forget, I'm the big supporter of Stalin. He has a problem, of course, when Stalin dies, because if a Stalinist comes in after Stalin, it's going to be okay. But if a non-Stalinist comes in, which we know is the case when Khrushchev comes in, it's a problem for Gorgio Dej because a reformist has taken over in Moscow. So he has to suddenly say, oh, I'm a reformist too. I'm definitely a reformist. So what does this tell us? This tells us that Romania um, feels so intimidated by its vast neighbour to the east, by Russia, that everything the Russians asked them to do at that point, uh, the Russians who have by stealth, if you like, occupied Romania and made it communist, Romania has to obey. This this tension between Russia and Romania, I'm interested because when we think about Soviet culture, I think we're primarily thinking of Russian Soviet culture. But did Romanian um, communism have its own flavour or character in any way? Well, there were lots of, that's a really good question. And there were lots of different shades of, uh, or strands, if you like, of Romanian communism. And uh, the Russians knew this and didn't like it. And so the, the strand that they didn't like was that there was a Romanian nationalist communist strand. In other words, that they were proudly communist, but also very proud of Romania as a state. So they didn't want Romania uh, to be uh, consumed, if you like, by the Soviet Union. They didn't want it to be um, at the beck and call of Stalin. They wanted a separate proud state that had its own independent communist party. So that, that which was probably Anna Pauka and some of her followers would have said, yeah, we need to be proud Romanian communists. And this is something that the Soviet Union didn't want. They wanted it to be subsumed within uh, the Soviet Union. So when we talk about different strands of Romanian communism, you're absolutely right, because we would look back now and say Romania was communist. I mean, that's, that's it. It's very simple, but it just wasn't black and white. So there are all these different strands. And then there were right at the, the, the other end of the, the spectrum were the communists who were who wanted to obey Stalin, who wanted to Romania basically to be a, a mini state of the Soviet Union. And they are the ones who got their way, if you like, right at the beginning after the Second World War and were gradually replaced when we see the arrival of Ceausescu. Well, let's talk about the arrival of Ceausescu because I think he's probably going to be the most well-known figure from this era outside of Romania. Um, and along with his wife, Elena, became you know one of the dominant figures in Romania for several decades. But he wasn't necessarily the most obvious candidate for leadership initially, was he? He definitely wasn't. There were probably seven or eight individuals um, when Gorgio Dej got cancer and they knew that he was on his way out. Seven or eight individuals who could have taken over. And Ceausescu, by my calculations, was probably sixth or seventh in that list. The list wasn't a very impressive one. And so we end up with six, seven, eight people there, most of whom are, are very poorly educated. But the the thing about the 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 way that the communists ran Romania is that it was almost an anti-intellectual revolution, and so uh, the intellectuals had been put in prison or put in labour camps. Um, anybody who was well educated or independent spirited uh, was seen as somebody who should be mocked, and so it was celebrated to be ignorant, to be somebody uneducated, and that was Ceausescu. So he was celebrated particularly because he was not educated and could barely read at the beginning. I mean, he did then become uh, somebody who was self-taught and read encyclopedias and began to understand uh, lots to do with sort of, um, you know, the, the output of, of of wheat and corn and pig farms and all that kind of thing. He sort of, he was quite good. Some people said even encyclopedic at remembering stuff like that. But the point is when 
if we get back to that thought anyway, that Ceausescu was probably sixth in line to take over. And he was very good at playing individuals off in the in the race that took place to replace the first communist leader of Romania. And so what Ceausescu had was that he had a knowledge of how the whole, all the communist rules worked. Um, and all those arcane rules and regulations, which all of us uh, try and stay away from, no matter what walk of life we're in. I think most of us would say, that is not for me. I'm not interested in rules and regulations. But Ceausescu had made it his business to understand those. And so when there's something very dramatic, like the leader's about to die, they all have to turn around to Ceausescu and say, so, I mean, what happens now? What's in, our, what's in the communist constitution? How does this work and how does that? So he suddenly found himself irreplaceable. And by some very clever, some might say sly politics, he managed to put himself in a position where he ran the country. It's got to be said that um, one of the others who possibly um, should have triumphed at the time was somebody whose father uh, was German. And anybody with any foreign blood at that time was not going to become leader of Romania. Because if you think about it, Ceausescu was another communist who was proudly nationalistic. So he's patriotic, nationalistic. He doesn't want to be part of, you know, within the Soviet uh, sphere of influence. He wants it to be uh, an independent, proud Romania. So when, and that does appeal to people. So when he took over, it's back to this, Romania will fight its battles by itself and will not be part of the Soviet Union. So that was the vision that he was selling, um, this vision of a proud Romanian nation. But what was the reality under Ceausescu? The reality under Ceausescu was very different. And um, the only way he could control the population was through something called the Securitate, which was the secret police of Romania, which had existed before, uh, but he expanded it and gave it more power. So the Securitate, the secret police, um, by the time, by the mid-80s, uh, generally, people in Romania were so, uh, they felt so threatened, so intimidated by the Securitate that it was generally thought that one in three people in Romania were members of the Securitate. And if you think about it, that would mean there's one member of the Securitate in pretty much every family in Romania. Now, we know now that wasn't the case. It wasn't anywhere near that big. They had a huge amount of informants, more than anywhere else in Eastern Europe. They probably had an informant in every block on every floor. So the, there were tens of thousands of them. But the point is that if the population thought that one in three people were members of the Securitate, then that was good news for the Securitate and for Ceausescu, because it meant people would behave themselves. So that kind of propaganda, they almost certainly helped pump out themselves to, 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 to frighten people. So what it meant was that um, there was no freedom, there was no freedom of thought or education. There's this terrible, dark, cloud of menace uh, that descends over Romania uh, right up until uh, 1989, uh, which stultifies uh, any relationships, normal relationships you might have, um, any kind of artistic aspirations for um, jobs or work or um, any kind of inspiration for normal life that we all take for granted. It's almost impossible to explain, but also just on a practical level, the idea that there is uh, very little food that Ceausescu, the country was so deeply in debt, he has to sell off all the best cuts of meat and things. He has to sell off a lot of the agricultural produce uh, to foreign countries to pay off the national debt. So the pitch on the ground in Romania is one of, um, of, of really terrible grinding poverty, um, a total annihilation of human rights and um, a degradation of uh, 
the people's spirit till they felt that there was really very little purpose in anybody protesting. And so um, students of this will know that Romania was one of those East European countries where actually there weren't many protests. People felt so deadened by Ceausescu and his regime that they couldn't summon the spirit and they couldn't even, it's not even just summoning the spirit, it's finding like-minded individuals when you're completely dictated, if you like, every angle of your life by the Securitate. So you can never find anybody to protest with. You can never trust anybody. Uh, you can never begin any political movement, no matter how secretive you wanted it to be, because the, the ramifications would just be too extreme. One figure that I really wanted to ask you about was Ceausescu's wife, Elena, who was a really prominent figure in not only the regime, but also the kind of cult of the Ceausescu's, wasn't she? The cult of personality. And she was hailed as a genius scientist. <laughs> yes. um, but as it turns out, that might not have been so true. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, Eleanor. I mean, it, it's quite interesting. Eleanor joined the Communist Party um, in the early days when um, her husband... Um, to be was still very young. I think she was in her early 20s. And her brother at the time, who was known, who was nicknamed as Blockhead, which tells you a lot, her brother said, listen, you come along to a Communist Party meeting, there's lots of um, nice young men there. And the nice young man that she met was um, Nikolai Ceausescu. So Eleanor was somebody who had no formal qualifications. Um, she was she, she was a, a peasant girl who came into Romania. And there's nothing wrong with that, of course, as she comes in from an agricultural background. And and, um, but she had these delusions of, or these illusions of, of grandeur and decided that um, the way that she could sort of progress both, well, socially, she wanted to be up there with all the other wives of all the, the cabinet ministers and things. She decided that the best way ahead was that she wanted to uh, impress people with her uh, invisible intellect as well. So it would be a good idea if she were seen as a genius scientist. Now, it's, it sounds ridiculous, but, you know, she they were able to make her into a genius scientist uh, by awarding her a PhD, uh, by um, telling everybody constantly on the daily propaganda, which was two hours of television every day, which was all celebrations of Ceausescu and his wife. And it, it's interesting because it started off just as these are everyday propaganda about Ceausescu himself, isn't he fantastic? And it ends up with there's a, there's a number two who's Eleanor and we must also um, pay homage to her. And these are called homage um, or homage broadcast. These are there's a great homage to Eleanor, and she will be um, you know the future leader of the country, and she is there, and she's a genius. And, and once I talk about this, it sounds insane, and it sounds like why would anybody be taken in? And actually, people weren't really taken in. Romanians knew that uh, she was somebody who wasn't terribly bright and all this was just made up. Her only qualification in science, as far as I can see, and as far as anybody else can see, is that um, she once worked in a in a an illegal um, vitamin making store in, I think it was in the 1950s. And she, um, yeah, she quite enjoyed putting together these sort of vitamin confection tablets, if you like, uh, which were, yeah, I mean, she shouldn't have even been doing that. And if she'd have been caught, she would have been in some trouble. But she had definitely had no qualifications whatsoever. So all this is manufactured. And it's interesting, isn't it, that um, 
Yet all the countries, a number of countries, including the United Kingdom, accepted her as a superstar uh, scientist and chemist. And we gave her various awards when she came to the UK. And uh, so did lots of other countries around the world. And it's a huge embarrassment, I think, that we didn't um, just peel back a few layers and speak to people who would have known, who would have said, all this is a fiction. So, yeah, and she ends up in a position, funnily enough, from this person who's fabricated all her awards. Um, and she's also extremely... Um, she's tempestuous and she's difficult and she is um, a gossip and she is um, constantly mendacious and um, and also um, she does victimise a number of her people that she would see as um, competitors. So she's got an awful lot of faults and all these are overlooked because all the people around her want her to be... Ceausescu's number two and this great woman, this great image of a great leader of Romania. And so, yeah, sadly, a lot of it is is overlooked and papered over. And there's a lot of people in Romania still alive today who are part of that conspiracy. So the Ceausescu's were overthrown and their execution was was famously televised on Christmas Day in 1989. How did they lose their grasp on power? Ah, you know, that goes right to the heart of a uh, of an issue that's still very controversial in Romania today. And so, and it comes down to something quite interesting. So we'll be familiar, Ceausescu did um, a big speech uh, in the middle of Bucharest um, in December 1989, 23rd or 22nd of December. He stands there in front of a crowd. And um, the idea is that he's seen all these regimes around Eastern Europe beginning to fall. He's seen the fall of the Berlin Wall. He knows that something is afoot, but he still thinks that his population love him. He's completely deluded in this. Um, But there still isn't much of an appetite for a protest, certainly for a revolution. And so, and this is where the controversy comes in. We all tend to think of it about uh, as a revolution in Romania, that it was a popular movement, that it was an uprising that happened spontaneously. There's another side to this, which is a lot of Romanians would say there was never an uprising like that. It was actually coup d'etat. We might say, what do we care, whether it was a revolution or a coup? But actually, of course, there is a difference. So a revolution being spontaneous, the masses rising up against their own popular leader, and a coup being where you have a group of individuals within the Communist Party who have already been conspiring uh, to overthrow, and all they do is continue with the same regime, slightly changed. And a lot of people in Romania would say it was the latter. It was a coup, and the West has been deceived. And when you look at it, actually, um, for the for the next 10 years after the deaths of the, the Ceausescu's, um, people would say not an awful lot changed, that the leadership, which was mainly through uh, a, a man called Iliescu, who's still alive today, that um, that was pretty much still a communist regime that continued for the next 10 years. So whether it's a coup or whether it's a revolution is very important to Romanians. And interestingly, even now, they're trying to take Iliescu in Romania, to court to say that that was never really a revolution. It was a coup and you were behind the coup. All that's really important, of course, is that Ceausescu was gone. There was an end to his rule and there was a a move, no matter how gradual it was, towards democracy. So you, of course, have strong connections with Romania. Your wife is Romania and you spend time there. How do Romanians today view all of this turbulent history? Well, I mean, I, it, it's something which, if you think about it, uh, 
the country had uh, communist rule for nearly 50 years. And then another 10 years that we've just mentioned where not an awful lot changed. Most people my age and above my age spent most of their lives in a communist regime. The way that people would look at this now is they'd look back and think these were extremely dark times where... Uh, there were no human rights and where there was a lot of poverty and where it looked as though they were never going to come out of this terrible spectre of communism. And um, although there are some very elderly people now in Romania, mainly amongst the elderly, who would say, well, actually, you know, uh, we look back and we see it as um, people behaved better. There were rules, there were regulations, um, things were a lot more conservative. Uh, there weren't, uh, you know, now they'd say, look, we see young people on the street, on scooters and skateboards and going to nightclubs and everything seems out of control. So if you if you just drill down um, into that for a moment with some of these individuals, which I have done, and just remind them of some of the aspects of, of not having any freedoms at all under Ceausescu and basically being his workforce, they change their mind pretty quickly. So I think, yeah, when, when people look back at it, they would say that is something that we would never want to go through again. But also, if you think about it, 50 years of communist rule, how do you recover from that? This is a whole generation, in fact, two or three generations that went through um, such a dark age, if you like, in terms of human rights and the economy, um, that it's not something you can extract yourself from overnight. And so it takes it'll take decades and decades to to pull out of that because this is a change of people's attitudes and culture and the way they perceive power and the way that they conduct themselves in public and the way that they um the way that they they, they interpret the government's behavior so when people talk about corruption now in Romania this is part of the problem my my final question to you but it's just about the book's title the book's title is children of night and i wanted to know what inspired that so children of the night is a it's a quote from uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. The children of the night, as he calls them, are his wolves. And so when Dracula's at his castle and all the wolves are howling, he says something like, be silent, my children of the night, or aren't they sweet, my children of the night? But I thought it was an appropriate title because there's a st- sort of darkness, a gothic darkness about it, which I think sets the tone uh, for, for the whole of the book. And uh, so the hope, I hope that people will understand the link between uh, Dracula and the way that he ruled all the way through uh, to Ceausescu and some of the same issues that face Dracula uh, that still face the country today. That was Paul Kenyon. His book, Children of the Night, The Strange and Epic Story of Modern Romania, is out now, published by Head of Zeus. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow when Fatima Manji will be discussing Britain's hidden heritage. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.